welcome to Rising. We have a stellar Thursday show for you today. Uh, we did a great interview with Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, actually, so you won't want to miss that. I thought it was pretty good. I thought it was pretty good. She spent more time with us than I thought she had been scheduled for, and I appreciated that and asked her some important questions, I think, about this, yeah. this debate between what is populism, is right populism legitimate, what is the left's critique of it, and the kind of questions I think that she doesn't... Yeah often get asked, so do check that out. I'll do to your very professional question-asking uh, <laughs> nature. I'm the Leslie Stahl, but I try. <laughs> We're excited to get to that in a minute, but first we have more news about Tucker Carlson. Take us off, take us away, Bree. Yeah, well, Tucker Carlson has finally broken his silence days after parting ways with Fox News. He posted the following video to Twitter. Let's take a look. Good evening, it's Tucker Carlson. One of the first things you realize when you step outside the noise for a few days is how many genuinely nice people there are in this country, kind and decent people, people who really care about what's true, and a bunch of hilarious people also, a lot of those. It's gotta be the majority of the population, even now. So that's heartening. The other thing you notice when you take a little time off is how unbelievably stupid most of the debates you see on television are. They're completely irrelevant. They mean nothing. In five years, we won't even remember that we had them. Trust me, as someone who's participated. And yet at the same time, and this is the amazing thing, the undeniably big topics, the ones that will define our future, get virtually no discussion at all. War, civil liberties, emerging science, demographic change, corporate power, natural resources. When was the last time you heard a legitimate debate about any of those issues? It's been a long time. Debates like that are not permitted in American media. Both political parties and their donors have reached consensus on what benefits them, and they actively collude to shut down any conversation about it. You can watch the rest of that. Uh, it's about two minutes long. We played you the first half of it. You can watch the rest of it online, on social media. It was everywhere. Obviously, this was the first time Tucker had spoken. It came out, I think, Pretty sure it came out right at 8 o'clock, so the same time mm. period that he usually has on Fox. Obviously, he did not say anything specifically about Fox. For all we know, he is uh, prevented from doing so if he wants to uh, you know, be paid out on the rest of his contract. My understanding of the economics here is that Fox is plans to pay him. For however much time he had left, which might be as much as 18 months, we're hearing. So that if you're doing the math on that, it's about like I think like 30 million dollars. Mm -hmm. uh, so he might not be able to speak, and of course that would keep him silent through the election. But here he's showing that maybe he he can weigh in. Well, yeah, he's not specifically he... talking about. I mean, we don't know what the exact details are, right? And be... they might be still being arranged. There was reporting from Brian Stelter that he had hired the lawyer, uh, the entertainment lawyer, the same one Don Lemon has hired, uh, allegedly, and mm -hmm. that Megyn Kelly had for her exit with Fox. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a huge difference if he can't talk about what Fox News, the, 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 the context of his departure from Fox News, versus if he can't talk about politics or have a competing show. There's, there's been discussions about whether or not he would have signed a non-compete, whether or not someone in his position would be coerced into doing something like that, whether or not he had enough power to have a contract that didn't limit mm -hmm. him in those ways. I'm sure we'll find out very soon. It did seem to me that he was hinting at the idea of wanting to have some kind of show where he has some kind of conversation that is more substantive than the quote-unquote stupid debates that he described taking up mo much of the airspace right now. He did this interesting juxtaposition between there's good people out there, there's hilarious people out there, but the level of discourse is very, very bad. You know, do you think you say something like that if you aren't basically planning to 
elevate the discourse, right. at least subjectively. Right, and he was hitting on themes there that are broadly popular, are things people want to discuss and hear mm -hmm. about outside of the very narrow confines of cable news. I, we know that, <laughs> as well as anyone else in the kind of YouTube alternative media ecosystem. So he will have no shortage of opportunities. He can do something like Joe Rogan. He could do something like Glenn Greenwald and, and all those people. He could mm -hmm. do something like Matt Taibbi if he mm -hmm. wants to write mm -hmm. again. He's actually a brifted, uh, gifted, brilliant writer. He could, he could rejoin The Daily Caller, which he actually co-founded with a, a college roommate. Before he came to Fox, he divested of it, but that's when I worked for him. It's like 12 years ago, it was there, uh, and so on and so forth. So if he wants to be part of the dialogue and actually be even, even more, um, you know, free to oh, discuss, mm -hmm. well, They'll, we'll see if he'll be as influential. I, I think there's every opportunity that he could be, but Fox does have a very built-in audience, very loyal audience, you know, millions of yeah, people, well, but you can reach millions off. You know, well. To that point, people are pointing out that his video as of a couple of hours ago has 42 million views. Now, the average Fox viewership for his... On Twitter? Yes, on Twitter. Uh, his, the average Fox News viewership is about 3 million, and people are taking that to mean that he can have more reach. Now... I don't think that those numbers are exactly perfect because, of course, the things that air on Fox get put on YouTube, and those also get millions of views right. on YouTube. So it's a little bit of an apples to oranges uh, comparison. But I think the broader point that many more people watch even Fox's yeah. content on YouTube suggests that it's not the infrastructure of Fox News or any corporate media that you need to be successful. It really is a lot more about kind of names, topics, and branding these days than people having this kind of um, fidelity to institutional authority. Um, so, I mean, what do you make of that? Do you think that there's something telling about the fact that he posted in the same old time slot and got 42 plus, this was a couple hours mm -hmm. ago, but 42 plus million views on a segment that doesn't actually say much of anything. <laughs> Possibly because he can't say anything. Sure. We don't know what the exact situation he's in. No, it shows the incredible loyalty. Again, people should watch this Marjorie Taylor Greene interview that's coming up next on the show. She addresses it and, and speaks to how influential Tucker Carlson is for the kind of right populist, uh, particularly on foreign policy, non-interventionist stuff. Um, she was beside herself with anger about this decision to get to for Fox to let him go. Uh, he he has a very loyal following of eclectic alternative individuals that goes beyond the normal scope of Fox. I think that's inarguable. Yeah, people were saying, I mean, there's this debate, right? Uh, I think it was a uh, um, a lot of people who had left Fox already. It was Megyn Kelly and some others mm -hmm. who had mentioned that they think that Fox is going to be fine, right? They were on the Fox well, is going to be fine side of things. I, I, I mean... <laughs> I also agree that Fox is going to be fine. Yeah, they are but that's going to a be different fine, question from what's going to happen to Tucker Carlson. And they're going to both be fine. There, there was this interesting yeah. article that that pointed out, you know, some people were saying, "Oh, well, look at X, Y, and Z person who thought they could live and be successful without sure. Fox, who haven't been successful." But I think that the comparison to Alex Jones is more apt than some of the other comparisons that have been ma made mm -hmm. to even Megyn Kelly, who you know has a podcast and, and things like that. But I would argue is much less influential than she was when she's she was a very on successful cable. podcast. She's doing very well. She doesn't have something like the platform she had right. at Fox, and I think you could say a similar thing, certainly a similar thing about Bill O'Reilly, right, going right. back. Um, but Alex however, Jones. there are people, right, <laughs> there are people, well, Alex didn't, he was never at Fox. Right, but, but it, the, the article that was making the comparison was pointing to a certain kind of um, a style and kind of cult of personality mm -hmm. that both men have been able to cultivate that I think really does 
apply to Tucker Carlson in a way that other figures who you, you watch to interact with others or to, to weigh in on various news stories. I mean, as you see from this clip, Tucker Carlson literally doesn't he hand waves at a bunch of kind of vague sure. issues, but he isn't even making a point. But he has been able to harness this sense of paranoia. Somebody's out to get you. The world is unjust. And as you say, these are themes that people are interested in and which I think most of us believe are true on some level. But as I explained mm -hmm. in a radar from last year around the whole uh, FBI um, abolishment um, discourse, there there is a power that comes in that vagueness. You can hide a lot of things that people don't agree with in that vagueness, like great replacement theory and white supremacy that most Republican voters don't think is a good you idea. You know, Ross Dowsett, who's the New York Times kind of conservative columnist, uh, had a great article about exactly what you're saying, the kind of paranoia, which which I'm not even saying with a negative connotation. No, it's it's correct to be, to be paranoid about some things. Yeah. Paranoia maybe. on the right increasing over time and Tucker being a figure that kind of shepherds that yeah. change, where you used to find, um, there used to be some skepticism and some paranoia, certainly in conservative circles of institutions. There was always a lot of uh, skepticism of the me mainstream media and ma of like elite universities, but CIA, no, those are good people. I think right. there wasn't skepticism of like every institution. Sure. In fact, if you wanted people who were skeptical of like every institution, you were looking to like the left of the 60s, 70s, et cetera. Um, that has shifted, not to say it shifted on the left, but now on the right, it's not just skepticism of the mainstream media and like a couple institutions, it's all corporate, uh, Disney. <laughs> the, the, the arts right. conservatives want to go to war with Disney. They want to go to war with the FBI and the CIA and the State Department and the entire military industrial complex. It used to be, what used to be confined to a couple institutions is now a widespread skepticism of authority everywhere. Yeah, and and to, Tucker represents that transformation. And to that point, here's an excerpt from the video that we didn't play. He said, at the same time, the liars who have been trying to silence them shrink and they become weaker. That's the iron law of the universe. True things prevail. Where can you still find Americans saying true things? There aren't many places left, but there are some. And that's enough. As long as you can hear the words, there is hope. See you soon. Mm. I don't think we've seen the last of Tucker Carlson. Absolutely not. Uh, more rising right after this. Speaker Kevin McCarthy's debt ceiling plan narrowly passed the House last night with the help of House Republicans, Georgia Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene being one of them. She joins us now to discuss. Welcome, Congresswoman. Thanks. Hi. Thanks for having me on. Yes, thank you so much for joining us. Why don't you take a minute to explain why you supported uh, this deal? Do you think it goes you know, far enough in, in constraining government spending, something you and yeah, you know, other uh, conservative members of the Republican Party in the House have articulated is an important priority? I really appreciate that question. Um, actually, of course, for me, it, nothing goes far enough. We're a nation and over $31 trillion in debt and to me, that doesn't have a one political party on it. It has both political parties on it because it took us decades to get to this point. But it was really um, the most recent year's spending that has pushed us completely out of control. Um, and none of us here ever wanted to be put in a position to raise the debt ceiling. But the reason why I was able to support this bill and excited to get behind it is because we cut $4.8 trillion in spending. And as a fiscal conservative, that's something that I can get behind. 
But what's more important to me is once we get this package and this deal done and completely out of the way, we can move on to the real work, which is the budget and appropriations. That's where we have the real power to actually make changes and help get spending under control uh, for the American people. In a recent 60 Minutes interview, you said that this is a spending problem, um, not a tax problem. And you resisted uh, pushes to, say, tax the wealthy, something that majorities of Americans support, and didn't seem to really focus on cutting the military budget as a way to bring down cost, despite uh, being a, a significant critic of the war in Ukraine, et cetera. There's been a lot, a significant conversation right now that Tucker has left Fox News about right populism versus left populism. Populism. And the differences between them seem to be largely about a willingness to go after elites and the rich on a financial level and do things like cut taxes for the rich, incur military spending. What do you say to folks that wonder why you won't go after elites in those sorts of ways? Well, all of these are great topics, and, and I really appreciate you bringing them up. Um, let me unpack that a little bit, because that was quite a few things. Um, number one, I don't want to cut United States military spending. I want to stop all of the money being spent in the proxy war against Russia in Ukraine. I believe that's where the American people can save a lot of money. Uh, Ukraine is not a NATO member nation. This was something that President Biden acknowledged, acknowledged from the very beginning. And uh, we're not, we should not be defending Ukraine's border while our border is completely out of control. So I would like to see changes there. I strongly support our military and I want to fund a, a, the strongest military in the world and that being our own military, but I don't want to uh, fund a war in, in Ukraine against nuclear powered Russia. Secondly, we have a, we have a spending problem in Washington DC, definitely not a revenue problem. Washington rakes in plenty of money but the spending is out of control. And again, I blame both parties for that. Um, the federal government is too big, it's overbloated. And as a business owner, that's what I've done most of my life. When you have too much overhead, you have to reel it back in. And that's how you get your company back under control. And we need to do that for our country. The federal government needs to be treated like a, like a successful business, not a business that's on the verge of bankruptcy. Um, thirdly, uh, for, for Fox News, uh, one of the biggest media companies in our country, to fire their top guy, Tucker Carlson, um, I think is, is a, a very dangerous sign for America. I think it's an assault on our First Amendment. And I, I really value um, a free press. I do. This is something I talk about frequently. And when a, when a media company fires their top guy, the guy that's bringing them in the most money, the most revenue, the most ad dollars. Um, it really shows something's wrong. And what I believe happened there is Fox News caved to the woke mob and they were being sued on multiple levels, uh, really in political nature. And that's the way most conservative Americans see it. Um, there has been a huge backlash against Fox News. Pretty much everyone I know has canceled their Fox News app. They've taken it off their phone. They've canceled their Fox Nation uh, subscription, and they've said they're walking away from Fox News. And I don't blame those Americans one single bit. Tucker Carlson, uh, on his show, Tucker Carlson Tonight, and on his show on Fox Nation, has been covering the news stories that Americans desperately want to hear because we don't hear them um, largely from the left-biased mainstream media in this country. And this is Tucker Carlson is someone that will come back around 
but Fox News needs to do the right thing and work with Tucker Carlson and not keep keep his mouth uh, shut with duct tape. They need to let him go and let him out of his contract so that he can do his show and go on to bigger and better things. And we look forward to seeing him come back. It is interesting that he was virtually the only person on cable news, uh, on any network, uh, who was saying some of the things you just expressed, for instance, on uh, Ukraine being a, a proxy war. Do you think he should run for president? Well, I don't know. That would be up to Tucker Carlson. So I'm supporting President Trump for president mm. in 2024. And I have no idea if Tucker would want to do something like that. I think he's more, interesting, more interested in going back to the career that he rightly uh, deserves because he worked so hard at developing it. Uh Speaking of uh, Trump and the 2024 battle, uh, you know, everyone, many people think that DeSantis is eventually going to declare as well. A lot of conservatives uh, like DeSantis want a fresh face, like what he's doing in the state of Florida, can point to his huge successes in the midterms, even versus kind of the general Republican landscape. Um, what, is, what is your case for Trump still being the best person to lead the Republican Party in 2024, given that he did lose to President Biden last time around? Well, I would say it's not really a lot of conservative conservatives that want to see Ron DeSantis run for president. As I watch the polling every single day, he's he keeps dropping in the polls. He's down to around 20 percent now um, nationwide polling. So that's not a, a very large portion of conservative Americans. Um, president Trump is the man we want to see back in the White House. And that's because we know his record that he showed the American people for four years. It was a record of success for our country. Um, energy independence for the first time in decades. We had world peace for the first time in decades. Um, we had a strong economy. We, we had a strong military and we were respected uh, you know, among the world, especially from world leaders. Um, freedom of speech is important. Our second amendment is, is important. Our children's education is important. Our economy is important and, and lowering crime is a top top priority. So these are the things that we, we know that President Trump brought America, and we want to see all those things come back uh, for, for everyone in this country. I want to come back to something that you said before, Representative, about being a successful businesswoman and thinking that the country needs to be run as a business. I think many populists perceive the, the, that the company already—the country, rather, is too much run in that direction. 57 percent of Americans think that billionaires, the extremely rich, should pay more of their fair share. In the uh, the debt ceiling uh, bill that was just passed, there were cuts to assistance for uh, women and children's nutrition and elderly nutrition, three, three million people who had their services cut. And it does seem over and over again that there is an extreme appetite for cutting the budget in ways that disproportionately affect poor and working people, while there's absolutely no appetite for ever taxing elites whose wealth share has grown exponentially over the course of the pandemic when so many people are struggling. So what do you say to folks who say the kind of populism that is being promoted by some people on the right is really a faux populism that really isn't invested in raising the material well-being of the poorest and most working class people in this country? Mm. I really love talking about this topic with you. Um, actually, it's the unholy union of a powerful federal government with big corporations that has created a lot of the problems that we have. And it's the trade deals for decades where we sold out American factories and manufacturers and sent our job, jobs overseas. 
and forced American companies to compete with countries like China and India, Mexico, and many others who use very cheap labor and child labor. You see our American workers couldn't compete and our American companies couldn't compete to that. And that was the government that made that decision. They sold out American businesses. And by doing so, they sold out America's blue collar workers. What we need to do is we need to break the unholy union between the federal government and big corporations. And we need to make American companies number one in the world again. And we need to stop forcing American companies to unfairly compete with foreign countries. And let's go a bit further there. You see, it's the excessive out of control spending in Washington, D.C., and the oversized government that has forced inflation to become so high that's really hurting America's poor. This is something I greatly understand. Um, this is how, this is all that my friends and family, these are the people that I know and love back home in Georgia and many of the Americans that I talk to across the country. Americans are suffering because of the horrible decisions in Washington, D.C. And the horrible decisions in Washington, D.C. are hurting the very people that pay the taxes, that pay the light bills uh, for here here in this building I'm sitting in. And, and it's it's time to make that end. Well, I tend to um, agree but the with big the... problem is, is when we have lobbyists that we see every single day coming to lawmakers like me, pushing the interest of, of big companies, big pharma, uh, the military industrial complex and et cetera. But yet we don't see any lobbyists coming here, pushing the interest for the small business owner, you know, mom and dad back home, the mom and pop grocery stores and so forth. That's everything wrong with Washington, and those are the kinds of changes that I want to make. Yeah, I tend to agree with a lot of that, Representative, which is why there's a question about why conservatives have embraced, pushed for uh, the relationship, the ability for people to spend exponentially, frankly, uh, and undermine the one-person, one one-vote principles of our democracy. So decisions like Citizens United have greatly expanded the power of corporations to influence the government. Right now, we're in the middle of a discussion about whether the Supreme, members of the Supreme Court have had undue influence because of informal lobbying efforts, people have argued. So would you support efforts to limit, restrict the amount that corporations can spend in politics? Well, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. I can only speak for myself. Um, I don't take donations from lobbyists. That's something that I decided to do from the beginning. Um, and I truly believe that I, each representative, um, all 435 of us, we really are kind of like lobbyists, or we should be for the people and the businesses back home in our districts. Um, so I, I, you know, I'm very interested in looking at some sort of changes possibly that can be made uh, for lawmakers and to reduce the influence of big corporations on, on legislation here in Washington, D.C., and make sure that we have the, the right focus on the American people. Um, but also, I'm a business owner, so I do understand the needs of businesses and their ability to be heard um, in things that affect their industry here. So I actually see it both ways. But I just want to remind you, I'm, I'm not really your average conservative or average conservative Republican, because I complain a lot of times about my party just as much as I do about the Democrat Party. Mm. I, I appreciate that. But just on that one point, 
not taking money from lobbyists is one thing. Not taking money from corporate interests is completely another. I might be mistaken, but very few politicians actually take that no corporate money pledge. Bernie Sanders was one of them. Despite taking that pledge, managed to out-fundraise everybody else in the Democratic Party. Would you ever consider swearing off all corporate donations, speaking to, as you have done, how pernicious the influence of corporate money is in politics? Well, I'm really excited to, to tell you that Almost all of my donations are small dollar donors. I think my average donation, and I I'm, could be off by a few dollars and change here, is somewhere around $35 uh, per person. So I, I'm not exactly sure of what my average donor is, but I think it's that it's around that dollar amount. Mm. Um, you know, but I'd have to look at what that pledge looks like because, again, what if I have uh, one of my constituents that that we have the flooring companies. Uh, in Dalton. So I don't want to say I'm going to swear off donations from someone that lives right there in my district. Uh, before we let you go, Congresswoman, wanted to give you a chance to respond to Hunter Biden calling for a House Ethics Office investigation into you. What do you have to say about that? <laughs> I actually was pretty amused um, when I learned about this news. You know, it's really interesting that Hunter Biden, the son of the President of the United States, uh, after, re especially, I went in the Treasury and read the SARS reports. Uh, I've seen what banks were saying about his financial transactions, and I've also read his bank records. And I've seen the wire transfers from China and other foreign countries uh, directly into fake companies. These are LLCs and shell companies that don't produce a product or, or any kind of service. And then I saw in the bank records where Hunter Biden and many of his other family members got paid directly out of these shell companies, these LLCs. So again, I find it really amusing that Hunter Biden is so offended that I would actually talk about that fact that he and his attorneys had to file a complaint with the House Ethics. But you know what? He's an American citizen and that is his right to do so. Um, I don't think it's going to have any effect, uh, but I, I was happy to share his attorney's letter um, on my on my congressional <laughs> Twitter account. One last question for me, Representative. Um, I actually agreed with you for when you called to defund the FBI. The FBI has historically gone over uh, after left-leaning groups, murdering Fred Hampton and the like, and 85 percent of its budget is actually focused on pursuing uh, left activists, left-leaning individuals. Uh, have you made any moves to actually pursue legislation that would get, get to the bottom of what your goals are there? Or was it, as many people argued at the time, a kind of performative call that was more linked from your perspective to um, absolving uh, Donald Trump from the kinds of interrogations that were happening against him? Mm, no, not, not performative at all. Um, I, I really don't have time for anything like that. I didn't come to Washington to, to be a performer. I came here to make real changes for our country, and um, it's been a difficult change in my life to do so. But I think these changes are very important. I don't think our nation's uh, law enforcement or Department of Justice should be used uh, as a political weapon. That's the weaponization of government. And that's something that should terrify every single American, no matter how they vote. And, and again, the Republican Party has the opportunity to make changes in the budget and the appropriations uh, bills that we pass. And that's where I think that we can make changes like that. And I'm going to work very hard in my conference uh, uh, using the power of my voting card um, to vote for a budget or appropriation bills uh, to be sure that we can hold the FBI accountable and the Department of Justice accountable 
And I just think that's the right thing to do. Hmm. Have you considered reaching out to any left-leaning members of Congress who share some skepticism, perhaps, about the FBI, for instance, uh, going after these members of the African Socialist People's Party, arresting a member last summer, and now going after four of them as uh, Russian, Russian agents? Uh, this is a story um, I'm, I'm not familiar with. Uh, I'm familiar with stories like the FBI targeting parents that are trying to hold their school boards accountable, the FBI targeting pro-life protesters, people just praying outside of abortion clinics. Um, I'm familiar with the FBI targeting people that, that walked in the Capitol. Um, you know, they didn't commit any violence. They didn't attack Capitol police officers. They just walked in open doors and they're still arresting them every single day. So I apologize, I'm not familiar with that story. Um, of course, I would love to talk to Democrat lawmakers, um, but tragically, they really aren't interested in talking to me very much. Hmm. That's a shame. It seems like there's some potential for compatibility on holding law enforcement accountable, whether they've uh, mistreated people on the right or on the left. Congresswoman, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. The U.S. House of Representatives nearly passed a bill to raise the government's $31.4 trillion debt ceiling. That includes sweeping spending cuts over the next decade. Here to help us break this all down is The Hill's congressional reporter, Mike Lillis. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Good morning. Good morning. Mike, what should we know about all this? What hit the cutting room floor uh, and what, if any, gains or, or uh, did Democrats manage to preserve out of all of this? Well, I think, you know, a couple of things. Great question. And uh, everybody's wondering how significant this is. Of course, this is a win for Kevin McCarthy. The speaker came in. He had, he had trouble getting the gavel. You know, you know the, the history there. It took him 15 votes. There's a, there's a lot of uh, conservatives in his conference that simply don't trust him uh, to hold the conservative line in these big budget fights with, uh, with President Biden. And, uh, you know, if, the, if getting the gavel was his first political test, uh, yesterday's vote on the uh, on raising the debt ceiling was his first legislative test, and he passed it. Uh, it took him about a week. It took a lot of arm twisting. It took a lot of closed door meetings. Uh, so there was some drama, uh, and in the end, he won, and and he was taking a well earned victory lap. Um, but I should say this, and this is a big but. Um, you know, getting your own party to vote for a, uh, you know a, a wish list of Republican priorities is not exactly winning the Super Bowl. Um, you know, this is more like a, a scrimmage. You've still got the other side to contend with, and in, in this case, the other side controls both the Senate and the White House. Uh, no one thinks this bill is going anywhere, uh, even the Republicans who passed it. So this is kind of uh, an opening salvo in the legislative fight over raising the debt ceiling and uh, and funding the government later in the year. Um, and so we'll see what happens now. The ball is kind of in Biden's court, um, but he is refusing to, to negotiate on the debt ceiling. And uh, so now we just have to see what happens next from the White House. And there was, you know, very negotiations, things going in, things coming out, et cetera. Uh, I know that ethanol uh, subsidies were out and then they're back in, I think, in the version that passed. Uh, you know, what are some other uh, developments along those lines that we should headlines of, of what actually made it into the bill that was voted on? But, you know, the reason that this passed, uh, the reason that, you know, the Freedom Caucus got behind it was essentially uh, this cobbled together all the Freedom Caucus, you know, you know their wish list, their budget, they, what they have been asking for for a number of years. Uh, it's all piled into this 320 page bill on top of H.R. 1, their big energy 
uh, bill that they had passed a couple weeks ago, which is, you know, essentially eliminating all of the climate bill that, Bi that Biden had passed last year and expands, you know, oil drilling and things like that. Everything the conservatives have wanted on the energy side was in there. Um, the ethanol subsidies, uh, I think that came as a surprise that that was going to be a sticking point because those that was also in H.R. 1. Uh, but in this case, uh, there were four Iowa Republicans who said, hey, wait a minute, those subsidies help our state. Uh, the governor is screaming about it. Even if this bill is going nowhere, we can't be on the record voting for them. So that was, you know, kind of a final, uh, you know, 11th hour sticking point that I think they did not foresee. Uh, so at 2 a.m. on Wednesday morning, uh, they put them back in, as you said. And that got those four Republicans back on board. Of course, they were crucial to passing the bill. Uh, the, the other thing is that when you look at the four who did end up voting against it, uh, their biggest gripe is that this, in the name of deficit reduction, doesn't do anything to, uh, to eliminate, to cut into the debt. In other words, it's going to slow the growth of the debt, but it doesn't reduce the debt. And so you see Andy Biggs, he's the former Freedom Caucus chairman, big uh, fiscal hawk. Um, he said, you know, if this is just a messaging bill, if this is just Republicans wish list, then why aren't we getting more aggressive with our federal cutting? And uh, and why doesn't this eliminate more of the debt? It, in other words, uh, the projection right now is, I think, 53 billion dollars. The debt will be in 10 years under this bill. It would be 47 billion instead. Uh, they would like to take the $32 trillion debt that we got now and, and cut into that number uh, as it stands. Have the four holdouts uh, articulated what they would like to see on the cutting room floor to actually get at the debt load as opposed to just uh, slowing, the, slowing the bleeding, as they say? Yeah, uh, you know, Andy Biggs has put out uh, a package of 500 bills that, that cut into, you know, pretty much every discretionary program under the sun. Um, so he is on the record with a, with a big package of cuts there. Uh, some of those will probably um, will probably move through this Republican-controlled House, and some of them probably will not because the programs that he wants to cut are just too popular uh, from uh, on both sides of the aisle. Uh, Nancy Mace was an interesting voice in this in this debate because she also said. Um, she said two things. She said, one, uh, some of these green energy subsidies for wind and solar benefit South Carolina, benefit my district, uh, and I want those in there. But like Andy Biggs, she said it doesn't cut the debt aggressively enough. So she was kind of speaking out of both sides of her mouth. Um, we want more federal spending for my district, but we want to cut federal spending overall and cut into the debt. Uh, she says she has a plan that can balance the budget in five years. Uh, we're waiting to see the details of that. And uh, and to get her vote, she had a sit down with uh, McCarthy yesterday, just a couple hours before the bill hit the floor. And she said that he has agreed to work with her uh, on ways to eat into that into that debt, into that $32 trillion number. So we'll, we don't know the details of all of that. We don't know how it's going to work. She mentioned a balanced budget amendment, but she doesn't, you know, she didn't commit to it. She didn't say that that was the tool that she wants to use explicitly. Uh, so we'll just have to see how those discussions happen. The, the important part was they didn't happen in the um, in the context of this bill, and it allowed her to, uh, to vote for it. He, he won her vote just by promising to talk to her uh, in a later legislative discussion about how to to, to reduce the debt, uh, another of the holdouts, another of the no's yesterday was Matt Gates, and and you get the you know Matt Gates was of course um, the, the guy who famously uh, held up the the 15th speaker's vote or forced the 15th speaker's vote back in January, and you get the impression you know he had asked for uh, for the expedition of of um, 
the work requirements for Medicare, food stamps, a number of federal benefit programs uh, that in the initial bill were going to take effect in 2025. Gates said, if you don't move it up to 2024, you don't have my vote. What did they do? They moved it up to 2024 and he voted against it anyway. So huh. you get the impression that, that Matt Gates is kind of he's kind of here in Congress to torture Kevin McCarthy. And, and he, he, he's doing it. Uh, he did it in the speaker's vote. He did it yesterday by voting against this bill. We don't know if his vote, if his, if his vote was going to be the decisive one. Would he have, would he have flipped? Um, we just don't know the answer to that question. And uh, and for all four of them, for that matter, you know, they were throwaway votes. They could afford to lose four and they lost four and it didn't matter. Hmm. Uh, but it is a discussion that will continue, especially in terms of how do we actually reduce the debt, not just uh, reduce the, the growth of the debt. Mm. Yeah, we spoke with uh, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene this morning, actually, on the show. She did vote for the deal and she's kind of been a close ally of McCarthy, you know, despite also sort of being of the kind of Matt Gates philo uh, philosophy uh, on conservative media, talking about a lot of the same things, but then during the speakership fight, you know, was closely associated with McCarthy, kind of broke with Gates and Boebert um, on that. Does this vote show that maybe McCarthy is proving to be a more effective speaker than expected? It, there were questions about whether he would even be able to wrangle the votes to be confirmed at all. Uh, you know, that was a kind of unprecedented in the modern times uh, uh, a vote to confirm McCarthy in the first place. Uh, many people thought that his whole speakership might collapse immediately, but here he gets this very key uh, bill actually passed. Right. And I, and I think, and it's a great question, and I, obviously, um, it is a victory, as I mentioned. It's a victory for McCarthy. He doesn't have an easy uh, caucus to deal with. Uh, there's a lot of people there who just don't trust him. Uh, they have a very slim majority, and uh, and it's gonna it's gonna take every you know every negotiating tool, every tactic that he's got uh, in his quiver, every every arrow in the in the quiver to get these people on board. Um, that being said, I, I think that the the expectations have been so low that any victory that he wins is going to seem, be seen as, as perhaps more monumental than it is. Again, you know, winning the speaker's gavel in your own conference, um, if you were the majority leader, shouldn't be like a, a terribly hard lift. Uh, and passing a big list of, of budget priorities um, that, that are never going to become law anyway through the House that you control is also it also shouldn't be a big lift and and this raises a lot of questions about you know house republicans have been promising a, a, a budget out of the budget committee um and this raises the question of can or will they be able to pass it um jody errington is the chairman of that committee and uh he says that they will produce a budget but whether or not it hits the floor is, is another question now and i think this vote kind of sends up some red flags can they pass a, another big budget bill and get everybody on board uh, outside of the context of um of raising the debt ceiling. Mm. So uh, again, a big win for McCarthy, but not not the Super Bowl. And uh, and because expectations have been so low, um, that people have been surprised that he's able to get anything across the, the finish line. I think. But mm. uh, this is the easy part. The tough the tougher stuff is, is is coming. They still have to negotiate with Biden. They still have to get something that actually becomes law yeah. and prevents a deep. Thank thank you so much, Mike. We really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. American Federation of Teachers President Randy Weingarten testified before Congress yesterday and was grilled on her role in pandemic school closures. Let's watch. 
So again, yes or no, but did AFT ever provide suggested revisions to the CDC's operational strategy regarding school closures or reopenings? Did you suggest revisions to their operational strategy? What we suggested, sir, was ideas. They but asked your, your letter us for to ideas. The, your letter to the subcommittee said that the AFT proposed a handful of edits to the operational strategy. Is that right? We what, what happened was there was one particular edit that they accepted. There were several different ideas that we proposed. Weingarten claimed she was part of an effort to reopen schools as early as spring of 2020. We spent every day from February on, trying to get schools open, we knew that remote education was not a substitute for opening schools, but we also knew that people had to be safe. Here, people have pointed out it's just one example of Guyengarten still publicly blasting doubt that schools were ready to open back in May of 2021. The CDC is saying that all these other mitigation factors have to stay there, including good ventilation, which 40% of the schools don't have, including mask wearing, which Texas and Florida and others are not doing. And so, you know, the teachers are being vaccinated. That's really good. But I worry with the new variants, what's going to happen in terms of, of, of transmissibility with kids and with their families. So, so we got to read the studies. We got to see what it really means. And I just hope this is not a rush to put in twice as many deaths in a place where we're really starting to get things reopened. In response to Weingarten's testimony yesterday, Stanford School of Medicine professor Jay Bhattacharya tweeted, quote, it's telling that pandemic era leaders like Randy Weingarten and Tony Fauci disclaim responsibility for shuttering schools. Everyone agrees now that decision was a disaster, but apparently no one is responsible, a policy conceived and implemented without an author. Uh, yes, contrary to what Randy Weingarten is saying now, I do remember her being very, very sour on the idea of reopening schools. Here she is saying it's reckless, callous, and cruel in, um, in uh, 2020 to consider that. Um, I remember her saying that she essentially wanted zero COVID before our schools could reopen. Um, I remember her saying that if there's ever a case of COVID in the school, it should close and they should wipe everything down. She was still saying that in 2021 when we knew that, like, we're not going to scrub the surfaces our way out of COVID. Um, and then other, other, maybe not specifically her, but other teachers union leaders, uh, the Chicago Teachers Union said that it was white supremacy is why you wanted to reopen schools. Um, in California, the teachers, uh, the school district, the, the school board of, I believe, L.A. or San Francisco, I can't recall which, said that, uh, well, you know, is remote learning so bad because kids are, get to learn more about, like, their family origins Who by spending that? time Randy with their Weigarten family. No, no, no. School district, okay. school so, board. So in somebody somewhere saying something is not the argument about what Randy Weingarten and the teachers' unions have to say. Mm -hmm. So let's look at the evidence that's been presented here. Andy Weingarten says, I wanted to open schools. That's not contradicted by the idea of not wanting to open them in a context where you think that people are going to get sick and die. So... And Randy Weigarten, in those clips we just played, says the CDC advises X, Y, and Z. What I'm so confused by is how we all agree that the CDC gave bad recommendations. But instead of blaming the CDC, blaming the decision makers, and blaming the government that decided to follow the CDC recommendations, there's all of this 
weird side blame on people who did their best and followed the medical advice that is the most validated and respected medical advice there was. I mean, I say this as someone who was being told, just like the rest of Americans, that there was this level of danger, that there were this unprecedented number of deaths, that even kids were dying, especially in low-income, predominantly black and brown communities. All of that was true. Now, the scale of it might, in retrospect, look to be somewhat exaggerated by the media. But in the days before the vaccine in particular, there was a real who knows quality to what your outcomes were going to be from COVID. Obviously, most people survived and it was fine, but a lot of people didn't. Millions of Americans died in that first year of, of COVID. Uh, literally a million Americans died. And a lot of people suffered longer-term health consequences, healthy people. So I, I don't want to be in a place because we now, with the advantage of retrospect, knew, know that maybe certain policies had a worse effect or had a bad effect that wasn't borne out by the science, that didn't need to happen because the science didn't bear out what the interventions were. But I heard Randy Weingarten right there saying, I want to have ventilators that are only present in 40% of schools so that schools can reopen. I want masking, and you can think that masking doesn't work and, and obviously low quality masks are not especially effective. But she's saying, I want schools to open and therefore I want these interventions and those interventions never came. And that's a little bit of a different thing than saying, I just want schools to be closed or to, to, to frame it as, I don't see there being a risk of uh, long distance learning. Because as far as I know, every educator that I spoke to was very concerned about the risk of, of, of distance learning because they know more than anybody about how much their kids lose knowledge over the summer and how difficult it is to teach, especially younger children, frankly, children of all ages, when the internet and all those distractions are there. I think the point of this questioning of her is to get at the root of the question, which is why didn't she, when she was in the conversations with the CDC and Tony Fauci, push more strongly for schools to open quickly, schools being closed, schools were more closed than any other facet of any other sector, any other industry. There were people were doing indoor dining. They were back to work. Yeah, I think the, the reason schools were still closed. Right, the, it's, they were because of Randy because Weinkart. Of profit. No, it was because no, of a powerful well, so, political force keep, keeping them closed I mean, that were, she is in charge of. First of all, you cannot sit here and speculate about what she did and did not say in meetings that we were not privy to. I don't need to, to me, speculate. I can hear what she said publicly, which well, is like reckless, she, cruel, Trumpist Robbie, delusion to let schools be open. What she's saying publicly, right there that we saw on the screen, is I want schools to open. Why don't we have ventilators? But why don't we have I masks? want schools to open, but we still have COVID. But this, I've been saying this now for a year. All of the people who were vetching and moaning about schools being closed didn't put any pressure on the government to actually. The government gives schools billions of dollars. Billions of dollars. It gives them billions of dollars so let's, anyway. Let's argue that the government misspent funds that were promulgated so that it could keep children safe and still hasn't done the things to improve air quality. That's a problem. But I'm sorry castigating Randy Weingart, I'm sure there are things that she's responsible for. I'm sure she overplayed her hand. I'm sure that she maybe weighed too much in the interest of uh, safety that wasn't borne out by the evidence. I think that all of that can be true. But what is being gained politically by going after Randy Weingart instead of the federal government who declined to put safety measures in place that could have enabled schools to open even earlier? I mean, we are going after the federal government, too. We're, we're not. All, I mean, we're going we're after not. the CDC. We're, and absolutely not. The, the, the Republican Party who's been driving this and I think that it's a perfectly fair realm of criticism. I've been per I've been very clear about how I think the mandates were at overreach needed to be more carrots before sticks, all of those kinds of things. But they're very selectively not going after 
Pfizer and the big pharmaceutical industries that also pay Republican candidates. They're going after the CDC because it's, they can spend that as a government agency as opposed to all of the people who are also paying in from the private sector and influencing those kind of decisions, as we saw from Lee Fong's amazing reporting yesterday on the show, that it's 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 people like Pfizer that are going well, we're and influencing— we're not letting Pfizer off the hook, we're, but that's, and we shouldn't, that's the but problem. we're not going to let Randy Weingarten people, off the hook for the reason are. that— Fine. Fire Randy Weingarten. I don't care about Randy Weingarten, but I well, do care about what the, the political agenda that it seems to me that is being very much point, uh, pointed out here. People can make mistakes. People were, people were dying. It was a very scary time. And I know that I had opinions based on what the CDC was recommending the in those early days. Did, the, did a body bag stunt in front of uh, the mayor of D.C.'s office to keep schools yeah. closed longer. L like I said, I, too, was swayed by the the commitments that the government was making, the, the rhetoric that the government was saying at the time about the danger of the vaccine. I'm sorry, the danger of the um, the, the pandemic. <laughs> and it was, and I really struggled with it because I am someone who, frankly, you know, is a little hesitant about whatever I put into my body. I, I, I drew it out a little bit. I was at home. I wasn't with a partner. Mm -hmm. I don't have children. You know, I wasn't going into a desk job. I was completely isolated. So I waited it out a little mm -hmm. bit longer for those kinds of reasons. I'm not someone... and. But I ultimately succumbed to the CDC's advice because I had a trip planned to, to cover Nina Turner's campaign and visit my grandmother in Cleveland. And I was told, you don't want to make your grandmother sick. So I got, yeah, I got vaccinated. Yeah. But, so I, well, we're, but the, the thing is, characterizing everybody who simply listened to the CDC advice as like evil and intentionally misleading the public and all of those kinds of things, I just don't think it helps your argument. Making an argument that the, that the, the teachers' unions made a mistake and overly didn't properly weigh the cost and benefits of what the school closures want to do for student um, education mm -hmm. versus how much it would actually promote public health interests is a completely fair critique. But the question is, why did they do that? Well, that's what, I, that's what I'm criticizing. I'm saying they, yeah, I, you're right. Randy Weingarten would be here. She'd be my hero if she had told the CDC to you know, get lost. But we what, need to reopen schools because thank you for your that. input that that this might make cases rise a little bit or something. But a, a the, lot. They the were being told a lot. You, so you, what you want for Randy Weingarten to have said, I don't care about the CDC's medical advice. Yes. I, a teacher who have no medical medical brackets. That's what Fauci said we were supposed insight. to do. That's what Fauci said everyone was supposed to do. He said, we're just offering one piece of the pie, the the medical side, and then there's the financial side, and the economic side, and the education side, and all those I, things. I think, and she could have said, yeah, thank I, you for your input. I think Fauci's but, wrong for that. I think that Fauci is underestimated. His whole, his recommendations, obviously, were going to have a persuasive effect. A very strong, almost edict-like effect on the public. Prior the federal COVID, government has no alternative. How often did the CDC's guidance for what were, like, not eating raw eggs and that kind of thing way on it's your daily I can't, I can't do this. The CDC's Robbie, guidance. It's, it's, a, it's a public health emergency, a pandemic the likes of which we have never seen in our lifetime that hasn't existed since 1918. So no, we've never seen the CDC relied on in this way. But everyone was looking frantically for advice about what to do. Mm -hmm. Nobody knew. Now, to the extent that people in the CDC knew, yeah. and, and doctors knew, and they were lying to the public, I think all the blame in the world lies there, 100%. But then to turn around and be like, you expect a teacher to make independent decisions the about their public health children. advice? We knew the age skew from very on was 
was was so was that children were the least at risk by factors no, that, over that's off true, the chart factors. The issue factors. was teachers, and you heard Randy Weingarten talk about teachers getting vaccinated. The issue wasn't that the kids were going to spread it around, and and I, I do think that the conservatives need to moderate their argument in this. Like mm-hmm. you're, you're losing points by not recognizing there were human beings teachers in the classroom that were expected just to catch COVID and get it and deal with the consequences in a time before vaccines came out. And that was a problem. She represents teachers. I'm sorry, she's a mm-hmm. teacher's union. There was a real health implication for, for millions of educators in this country being told just to potentially walk to their deaths because there was not a vaccine out. And the vaccine, once the vaccine's out, I think there's a much stronger argument, right? Because then the risk of actual hospitalization and death comes way down for adults. But schools aren't just rooms full of kids pointing at a chalkboard. There's adults there. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, Randy Weingarten also said, I believe, that she didn't want schools to reopen until there was an 80 percent vaccination rate, not just the availability of teachers to get vaccinated, but an actual vaccination rate, you know, across the board or across the yeah, I mean, population look, of people, maybe that which, was again, really, that was is totally wrong. But well, maybe that was a random number. Maybe it was an, a badly chosen number. Maybe it was a number that she got from CDC advice. I don't know my my feelings about that. If Randy Garden, it, Ryan Weingarten is in fact coming up with science numbers and metrics mm-hmm. as a non-medical professional that are then miscalibrated to actually deal with the crisis, I think that's fair criticism as well. But again, if she's getting that 80% number from the CDC saying we think school vaccination should be 80% before we reopen schools, then again, it's I, I don't understand the critique. Who else was she supposed to listen? Do you want her to, you know, look into a magic orb and decide when schools should reopen? Should she consult her personal guide oh, by the way, to decide okay, when the schools should reopen? A lot of schools did. A lot. Of, some schools stayed open. Yeah. Um, it, Catholic. A lot of my nieces and nephews in Michigan are in Catholic school. Um, that that school shut down for the initial period. You know, when when mm-hmm. when, when coronavirus happened. I mm-hmm. think for the rest of that school year. But then in that fall, it, it reopened. It never shut down again. Lots mm-hmm. of, in Virginia, they did a comparison. A lot of the private Catholic schools stayed open. So some people somewhere in charge of schools decided Robbie, to reopen them. <laughs> the schools that got shut down were the ones Robbie. because Randy Weingarten was not putting the needs of students first. No, people can make good choices that look good in retrospect. But you can't just look backward and say, oh, everybody should have known this was going to be the outcome. Like. It is perfectly fine to say, let's learn from this situation. There were people who made good choices, it ended up panning out, and maybe in the next pandemic we'll behave differently. But to say, it could have gone the other way very easily. None of us understood what what the science was going to bear out. And to the extent, again, that some people did know and were overstating the risks and understanding the risks to children to lose learning, those people should be held responsible. But I haven't really seen the case so far that that person is Randy Weingarten. Now, if, when, if there's some email that comes out, Twitter files, I don't know, where Randy Weingarten and Fauci are emailing back and forth, and Fauci says, honestly, the risk to kids is low, and now the vaccines are out, the risk to adults is low, but we know that if schools are closed, we can get more people to get vaccinated and use this as a cudgel, so let's just keep schools closed. Then obviously that's crazy and conspiratorial, and she should be fired, and that's awful, right? But I I feel like sometimes that's the implication here that hasn't quite borne out. And while people should be criticized for their mistakes and have to reflect on it and make sure they do things going forward— at a certain point, the CDC is the ground zero for all the bad information. And I don't know that we're living in a, we should be living in a world where we think that every non-credentialed, not credentialed, but non-expert, people who have no 
evidence to make decisions. I mean, there, there should be making those kind of reporting from the New York Post, and then we should probably leave this subject for right now, but uh, that uh, the National Education Association did message with the CDC on, um, on what exactly the yeah. phrasing should be. Yeah, this, it's all it roads lead to the tilted, CDC. But I, I think the thrust of this is that it was tilted by the NEA side to be more pro Okay, that, that's a perfectly legitimate critique. Mm -hmm. You know, if the, if, the, if, the, if the tail is wagging the dog, if the schools are advising the medical professionals about what the right course in a pandemic is, that's obviously wrong. That's mm -hmm. obviously wrong. But based on what happened in these hearings yesterday, um, I, I, you know, I'm not seeing it. There was another clip that I had hoped to get to. Other news that was kind of viral out of the hearing was that um, uh, with our earlier guest today, Marjorie Taylor Greene, opining about whether or not uh, parents through marriage, by, uh, adopted or parents through marriage, like your step your step parent, are real parents because they're not biological parents, um, told a witness who is a mother through marriage that she's not, in fact, a mother. That was another viral clip that went around on the internet, but it looks like we have to wrap uh, yeah. for today. Uh, that, yeah, sounds inappropriate, but we didn't get a chance to ask her about that, unfortunately, but there were a lot of other things we did get to ask her about, so please watch that interview, and we'll have more Rising right after this. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis called Disney's lawsuit against him political, telling reporters at a news conference in Israel on Thursday that it has no merit. Let's watch that. In fact, they've been treated much different than Universal, SeaWorld, and all these other places. And so they're upset because they're actually having to live by the same rules as everybody else. They don't want to have to pay the same taxes as everybody else, and they want to be able uh, to control uh, things without proper oversight, which every other Floridian has to have this this type of, of oversight, all Florida businesses. So it's, um, uh, it's, a, it's a little bit much uh, to, to be complaining about that. I don't think the suit has merit. I think it's political. I think they filed, you know, in Tallahassee for a reason because they're trying to, to generate, um, you know, some, some, some district court decision. But we're very confident on the law. Disney's suit against DeSantis alleges that the Florida Republican is harming its business operations and comes as a board appointed by the governor to oversee Disney voted this week to void development contracts that the company made. This is just the latest development in a continuing feud between DeSantis and the largest company in his state, stemming from Disney's public pushback against DeSantis's education policies, which included the, quote, don't say gay law that prohibits gender and sexual orientation from being taught in public schools in the state. So I should start by saying, look, <laughs> obviously I agree, and you probably do too, that Disney shouldn't have any special rights or privileges that would not be afforded to other companies under the law. So if this is about like tax breaks or incentive packages or things, then fine. I don't actually know that that's what's really going on here, but, and in fact, I saw a former representative, Justin Amash, one of my people, libertarian, we've interviewed him on the show before. Um, he said, uh, the facts and law in this case are not good for Governor DeSantis. He and his allies took action not to make all companies live by the same rules, but instead to target Disney with harsh conditions that apply yep. to Disney alone, all as punishment for constitutionally protected speech. Yep. So DeSantis, you're right. It's political, but let's not forget who started this political yeah. game. The posture of this thing has gotten really blurred. If we put it in Disney terms, 
Once upon a time, <laughs> <laughs> there was a company that got special tax breaks and the like in the same way that capitalists across the country and both parties offer all sorts of incentives for businesses to come to their state. The law of the land in America is that taxpayers subsidize all kinds of businesses with the promise that it will bring jobs to the state. I'm against, I'm a capitalist. I'm against all that. <laughs> Economic I am totally against all that. Sure. Fine. But that is par for the course. It's not a partisan yeah. issue. AOC got a lot of flack from Democrats for objecting to Amazon coming to her district because mm -hmm. she felt like it was going to be at the, at the long-term cost of her community. Her community supported her. Democratic Party did not. Okay. But they that's can the come. Status. They just shouldn't get any tax breaks. They shouldn't get any tax so. breaks, right? Yeah. The, the, that's the status quo, and the, the, the conservative Ron DeSantis and Disney are happy about that. Ron DeSantis promulgates a law. Disney uses its free speech rights to make a statement because it was pressured by its employees to make a statement saying, don't love that law. It's not a mm -hmm. fan. Then there is a political prosecution of a corporation by the state because they don't like that they wrote a letter <laughs> objecting to their law. So that is an incredible yeah. escalation from Ron DeSantis that was completely unnecessary. It's, and now we live in a world where, yes, Disney has to countersue because it's, it's being targeted by the state in what is, an, I got to say, an explicitly authoritarian move. Well... Okay, so I agree with that from my perspective, but aren't you all about putting limits on corporation speak? Yeah, absolutely, which is why this dynamic is so funny. So the dynamic is the interesting because conservatives are being hung by their own rope here because yes. having established that uh, corporations with Our their people? spending should have all sorts of speech rights. I actually totally agree with that. I have no problem with that. And this is that they were clearly exercising that here. And I don't know what is to oh, be gained by Republicans even for more, harping on them. Even more than that, though, part of Disney's lawsuit is based on the idea of political money as political speech. And so they're basically they're using a kind of Citizens United yeah. argument to be a human, a person, to, to have corporate pers personhood and object to Ron DeSantis squelching their free speech rights. So yeah. as like objectively, you know, as a leftist and as a lawyer, I don't like any of that, right? But there is some kind of poetic justice for these this kind of speech claim to finally be used in the interests of something like vaguely liberal. Right. Again, it's not that liberal because, again, this is a corporation that I don't think should be getting special tax breaks, but it is in contravention of a authoritarian right. government they attack be getting that special, I also object special to. Special tax breaks, period. But just like it is a violation, in my view, of the First Amendment for like the Biden administration to say, Facebook needs to take down more COVID disinformation or I'm going to change their liability protection mm -hmm. so that they suffer t terrible financial harms, something that actually literally happened. Mm -hmm. um, just like that, at least seems to violate the First Amendment to me, I think it would be similar for a governor, a Republican governor, to say, I don't like that letter. You And also, this, was, this wasn't like the most egregious example no. of wokeism I can ever think of or something. Put out a letter I didn't like, so now I'm going to come at you with the power of the state. Yeah, Disney was basically it seems like, obviously, hey, I don't know who people would work here. And they don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that was, it wasn't that, it wasn't even right. that the argument, And the argument I'm seeing from, uh, from conservative, uh, yeah, yeah, social conservative, fight wokeness type people, as they, they're very happy on Twitter that DeSantis is doing this. I don't see a lot of like, I don't see a legal defense from them. I, I don't see them <laughs> saying, uh, you know, oh, this is obviously constitutional. I see them saying, DeSantis is fighting wokeness and no one else is, and we have to stand by him. 
not a not a kind of not a philosophical or legal defense, right. but just like a, it's an us versus them, and he's actually fighting, so we should support him. Yeah. Meanwhile, Nikki Haley is offering Disney to move to her state as though it could pick up an infrastructure that's like the size of Manhattan and <laughs> move it to another state. Yeah. But this look, the, Ellie yeah. Mistel, who's a but that's a legal what that's what people should that's what people in Congress should be doing, not saying you know if you relocate here, we're gonna I'm gonna tax like. Taxi cab drivers or something, and just give you those funds as they, as com members of Congress and governors and state legislators often try to attract industries by that kind of scheme. Uh, this is this is most egregious with uh, actually a related thing with the the film subsidies. Mm -hmm. um, these are these happen in all the states. I remember when Michigan did this, uh, and actually Georgia is the state that won because there's so many stuff. There's so much entertainment stuff produced in Georgia because of the film subsidies. But it's like it's it's like a direct cash payment to studios to relocate to mm -hmm. your state that is that is the government giving money to a mm -hmm. specific industry that it raises from taxing other industries. Mm -hmm. Like they, I think in Michigan specifically, they raise taxes on um, on uh, on small businesses. I think it was on taxi drivers or somebody mm. else. Maybe it wasn't taxi drivers. It was something motor. Maybe it was food trucks. I got to mm. look this up. It was it was a small businesses in Michigan being taxed to pay a direct subsidy to entertainment companies to relocate to Michigan with the idea that you would start a permanent entertainment industry in a freezing cold <laughs> state, uh, uh, then what happens is some other state offers an even more over-the-top generous direct cash payment. Yeah, and there's an arms race for rich move. people to not have to pay their taxes at the right. expense of poor people. You see this with sports yeah. stadiums and the like all over the place. Sports stadiums, the same thing. This Again, people are being taxed. Other people are being taxed. Right. to. It's, it's just a transfer of money from the small business owners already in the state to, to rich, powerful and, out of And non-business owners. It's worth noting that Truly, for all the talk of business owners, God bless, most people are not business owners. Yeah. So regular well, working people are being taxed. A lot taxed. of them work at small businesses, and then the you know the, maybe they take it out of their paycheck. Maybe they cost the pass on to the Have you worked customers. for a small did you Did you have a lot of identity of interest with your boss when you were working at whatever retail or fast food job that you well, worked in your Well, if it's a youth? local, if it's a small, but no, but but you are affected by what by the financial, All right, well, whether you feel that way or not, since, you are since impacted. Since the, the most populous, uh, the, the, the most numerous uh, uh, kind of working class job in America is in the service industry, retail, restaurants, et cetera. I mean, it's just, I think it's worth noting there's a way that we talk about business owners in a way that I think erases who most working class people are, in which big business, small business owners are used to insulate big business against the kind of policies they promote that are just like the ones that we're criticizing right now. That's, that's all I'm saying. So this whole, this whole Florida business, I, Ellie Mistel, who's a legal analyst at Above the Law and on, on cable news, he said, like, look, I'm rooting for Florida, but I'm not too excited about any of this for the reasons that we've described. It's a real Mothra uh, versus Godzilla situation here. Mm. <laughs> like, it's it's not, I, I'm, I'm kind of rooting. It's a Peter Pan versus Captain, no, 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 it's no, no, a, no, two bad things. It's a it's Captain Hook things. versus Ursula. Oh, I gotta be team. Well, well, we were talking about the Little Mermaid because we saw those really abhorrent, terrifying um, Is it like Captain Hook the... from Hook or just like Captain Hook from Disney's Peter Pan? I don't know. I picked two at random. I I, I could have done better. Yeah, I, I might have to be team. Uh, Maleficent on versus the Evil Queen. <laughs> I never saw that. You never saw. You never saw With Angelina Jolie. No, I, I was going for the original oh, the Sleeping Beauty one. I didn't see the Angelina Jolie I've seen Jolie Sleeping one. Beauty once. My it's my best friend's favorite Disney movie, yeah. so I watched it once for her. But it is very bad. It's a little basic. It's very boring. It's a little basic. Yeah, I'm I'm much more of a Little Mermaid. Uh, 
Beauty and the Beast sort of a gal. Uh, but like like me, you were horrified by these photos of this this fish. Yeah, the, the audience loves it so much when you talk about movies that you're passionate about. Maybe we should do a segment on the animations that have come out about the new live action Little Mermaid movie and how Flounder and Scully, what's, his, what's the sequel's yeah. name? are kind of horror horror shows. This video gets to 100,000 views. We will do just that. Challenge to you, audience. More rising right after this. Defense attorneys for a homeless man accused of assaulting former San Francisco Fire Commissioner Don Carmignani said they now have video evidence apparently showing Carmignani bear spraying a different homeless man unprovoked. According to the San Francisco Standard, the video taken in November 2021 is part of a trove of new evidence that has come to light that may link Carmignani to a series of at least eight targeted bear spray attacks on homeless people. Carmignani claims he was assaulted by a homeless man with a mental, uh, uh, with a metal pole, rather, I'm sorry, on April 5th. However, charges against the alleged assailant were dropped yesterday. Prosecutors say they believe the man was acting in self-defense after evidence emerged that Carmignani bear sprayed him Two, an attorney for Carmignani says the former commissioner vehemently denies he is responsible for these assaults. So I, I watched that video footage, uh, the, the, the footage from night, where he's, it's, it's clear, it's clear as day, ironically, that the homeless person in that case is just laying in a kind of makeshift bed on the sidewalk, does not do anything to provoke any kind of confrontation, is out of the way, and it's, it, He's carrying, Carmignani is carrying bear spray and, and real aggressively just sprays him. And now apparently he has a, a proclivity for doing that. He's a history of yes. doing that. So I, I think it was probably the right decision for, for prosecutors to consider the evidence they had and say that that was a, what looked like a very vicious, uh, and, and was in fact a vicious, brutal beating. He put the man in the ICU was actually self-defense because of his history of using um, yeah. bear spray. And it should be clear that bear spray, a spray intended to deter bears, Mm -hmm. uh, is very, very dangerous. Um, it can cause a, a lot of severe reactions in human beings and even in some cases has resulted in death. So it's a very serious thing to do to somebody. And when this happened, the, you know, the context of the story that you really have to appreciate is that conservative outlets, the New York Post, blared big headlines about what an injustice had been done to this ex-fire commissioner. We shouldn't also miss that this is a public employee State that's entrusted with the public health and, and public interest. Blasted headlines, ex-fire commissioner describes smash jaw and skull from San Francisco pro bar attack, DA declined to prosecute, and was really part of this narrative about how dangerous San Francisco is and how the district attorney, the prosecutors there, are more interested in, I don't know, Black Lives Matter or whatever than they are in actually bringing people to justice. Mm -hmm. And so this does seem to be another big hiccup in that narrative following also the revelation that the tech CEO who was murdered was murdered by a friend of his and not as many people presumed for the intervening weeks by a homeless person. Um, and so I don't know, at, at a certain point, are we going to stop to, to give a little bit of space to folks to let the de information develop, to, to ask if prosecutors have a good reason for not prosecuting a case, that they're looking at evidence or suspect that there is evidence that the victim in this case who wasn't actually a victim, was actually the instigator in not just this one instance, but in apparently a repeated series of attacks on homeless people. Well, if you're trying to go after, you know, the the idea that 
violent crime is rising. I mean, that should be one way or the other. It has to be based on you know rigorous statistical analysis, mm -hmm. not one-off incidents, one way or the other. I think I'd agree with you that maybe there's been a focus on one-off incidents, and you know we don't know if. I mean, the other week we you know we talked about three really horrific, unprompted, violent assaults on people. Um, which you know, fit up a pattern of our news coverage for that week, but we have no idea if that kind of mm -hmm. thing is getting more common or less common or you know, you know, what it follows or correlates yeah. to, if anything. So I would say the same for a lot of these crime stories. I mean, both of these incidents are still incidents of crime. They were just, oh, yeah, crime they're just not, they're but not incidents of It's of middle class or wealthy guys attacking either each other or the homeless well, for right. these two well, cases, right. obviously. We don't know that that is But that's the thing. We see, uh, we see other instances and we say, well, there's a pattern here. We, we, we well, I don't say there's a pattern not, here unless I'm we, looking the public, at the data. The, 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 the people, yeah. there, there are, I'm sorry, conservatives mm -hmm. who are really cherry-picking instances to make claims about the rise of violent crime in various cities. Now, as we've discussed, violent crime is up in some cities, mm -hmm. it's down in other cities, gun violence is up in a lot of red states in a way that isn't discussed, it's down in a lot of blue states. Local, blue state. Your beloved local news does this. Right, and, and, crime, as well. and crime sells, but what is it doing if it to leads, our, it leads. our society? I mean, I had a friend, I was scrolling my feed recently, and a friend looked over my shoulder and was like, why are all of your video, why is your whole timeline, like, people punching each other in, like, race fights on the street? You know, woman calls woman the N-word, and so they get into fisticuffs. Like, my, my timeline, like, there's so much on my, my Instagram about that stuff. I said, I don't know, Instagram? but it, it does feel to me, yeah, people put TikToks oh. on Instagram. I'm old, I don't go to TikTok, but I watch TikToks on Instagram. But the, there's there's so much at the Mine news Mine is all clips coverage. from Family Guy and people playing Dungeons & Dragons. Go ahead. Uh, there's so much uh, news coverage that is clearly geared toward making us feel antagonistic against the other. And That's nothing that, new, though. No, it's nothing, not nothing new, but it's something that I think people should be aware of and resisting because now there are political actors. I mean, there have always been to a certain degree, but political actors right now, particularly in the Republican Party, have realized that they can capitalize on those kinds of frustrations, feeling that the world is changing too fast, what's really going on with transgender people, yada, 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 as a, as a supplement for substantive policies, where you look at their actual constituents and you ask, what do you want? Well, 60% of Floridians voted for a $15 minimum wage. These policies are very popular. People want health care reform. 57% of Americans want a wealth tax. You don't have to talk about any of that if you can animate people on these other kinds of priorities. I mean, if you pull them about whether they're concerned about crime, they will also say overwhelmingly yeah. that they are. So we should. Yeah, the government in, should do. These governments should do yeah. something about crime. But what we've seen is throwing the, these men, this money at police departments isn't doing anything. It has no correlation to lowering actual. Well, but now crimes. you're now. Whether it works and whether it's popular are two different things, right? Well, people wait. ask poll people. I mean, giving more money to the police is probably overwhelmingly popular. Well, the poll that I cited was about a policy, a right. wealth tax, which people support, but there's no well, political appetite for. Well, funding the police is for. also a policy. Well, you didn't ask about funding the police. You asked about a poll about what, whether people need something needs to be done about crime, and those right. are two very different polls. And it's not clear to me that fun, the, what the funding police poll is like from locality to locality, locality. Also, I do think people, including a lot of Democrats, who've completely dropped this issue and turned tail, thinking that it's a bad one for them, have have acquiesced to the notion that increased police funding does yield to less crime. So of course, if 
you, if the Democrats are saying that and Republicans are saying that, if people like Kathy Hochul and Eric Adams are saying that and Republicans are saying that, well, if polled, voters are going to say, well, yeah, let's give police more funding. It'll lead to less crime. Everybody's telling me that's true. So there's some p political responsibility for everyone, I would argue, across the political spectrum if you sincerely care about crime. Right. Oh, so only 18 percent of respondents support defunding the police, according right. to this poll. Right. But if you pull people on whether or not they think more resources should be going to preventative measures, housing, food, education, et cetera, that are known to lower crime, many, many people, much I mean, higher think, percentages of people support uh, We've that. argued about this before, but it, it depends how you're spending the money on police. Obviously, giving police more, like, SWAT team toys is not going to make any difference. Mm -hmm. um, there have been studies. My understanding is even—I mean, even people I know who are big supporters of criminal justice reform, uh, not like pro-police, tough-on-crime people at all, my understanding from talking to them is that one does need to acknowledge that putting more police on the streets in high-crime area, high, high areas does reduce crime, but that's what they tell me. So you seem skeptical, but— I mean, I, I can't speak to polls yeah. I'm not looking at. Yeah. Well, I'm not talking about polls. I'm talking about studies. I'm not, I can't speak to studies I'm not looking at. But I know there are a lot of studies that show how much the crime rate goes down by giving people money, making sure people have jobs, making sure there's after-school programs, making sure that people have good education. I think after-school programs would be great. Up school, you know, well, that and that's... parents can be home after work because there's someone who they, either one parent makes enough to be the sole uh, caregiver or there are... Mm -hmm. Caregiving services in the community that aren't expensive. Care, child care is like two thousand dollars a month, and poor people—that's just not accessible. Yeah. At least one one way or the other, networks. keeping the um, the age group that tends to find it itself um, potentially succumbing to areas of dangerous or antisocial behavior, if they are distracted by social supports, extracurricular activities. More supported school, jobs, Gosh, employment, if, if only, all of those things. If only things. there were a place where you could send up off a bunch of 18-year-olds where they could be away from their communities in an educational environment and a dorm where they could be you know, taken, taken care of and looked after all the time by responsible elder people. What's the word for that? Oh, yeah, college. I wish more people could afford oh, what's the word? to go to college. I wish, in fact, there were a publicly funded college system just like high schools are publicly funded so every American had the opportunity Maybe, to go. Maybe instead of waiting until they're 25 to contribute meaningfully to society, we, they could get jobs that teach responsibility, give them income. There's a great, there's a great study about that, about how many kids want to be, I think it was electricians, how many young people very much want to go into vocations because yeah. they're very well paid. But the problem is that um, the, the basically union structure for a lot of these uh, professional unions like electricians, the apprentice, the, it's cheaper. They, they benefit from there being a backlog of requests because obviously they can keep going. And it costs them to have to train for these uh, apprenticeships. So they basically don't have anybody coming up the ranks and they don't want to dilute the numbers. Sounds like a union problem. So it, 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 it is. Um, it's a business union problem, and there's a lot of ca corporate capture in all of our institutions, and it's a, it's a fundamental problem. Hmm. Yeah. More rising right after this. So, I think it's very important, as you have heard from so many incredible leaders, for us at every moment in time, and certainly this one, to see the moment in time in which we exist and are present. 
and to be able to contextualize it, to understand where we exist in the history and in the moment as it relates not only to the past but the future. So that was Vice President Kamala Harris delivering another tongue twister of a speech on her first official stop on the 2024 campaign trail. According to new reporting from Axios, members of Pre President Biden's team are rushing to Kamala Harris's side in a push to repair her image before the 2024 election season shifts into high gear. They believe Harris's poor poll numbers and apparent unpopularity means she could sink the ticket. A new Fox News poll shows that Democratic presidential candidates Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and Marianne Williamson enjoy small gains over President Biden of potential primary voters. 62% said they'd vote for Biden, 19% for RFK Jr., and 9% for Williamson. So that's up uh, just over a few days ago when last there was polling on their numbers. Maybe he did get a bump from his announcement last week, which got didn't get very much mainstream media attention whatsoever, but he was on Tucker. He was one of the last guests one on Tucker Carlson's guests. show. Uh, it 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 goes to I think the enduring uncertainty many Democrats still have about President Biden and a uh, maybe there's more certainty about Kamala Harris, just not a positive certainty. No, so Kamala Harris's popularity numbers are somehow worse than Biden's. Remember, what is it, 70 percent of voters don't want uh, Joe Biden to run again. Majorities of Democrats and Republicans alike don't want Joe Biden to run again. They also don't want Donald Trump to win. Nobody's looking forward to this uh, rehash of 2020, it seems. But Kamala Harris, because she's even more behind is now being, you know, looked at as a way to kind of tune up and, and judge uh, Biden's numbers. They don't want her to drag down the ticket. But when you look at speeches like that, <laughs> when you look, I mean, look, what's, imp what's important, Robbie, is in this moment. Brianna. To understand the context of the space that we're in at the table and the chairs <laughs> with the people around us who understand ephemerally. I'm in. You sell, this, you sell this so much better than she does. I'm in. I mean, come on. Like, I, look, she's not responsible for a bunch of terrible policy decisions, at least in the, in the White House, the way that Biden is. There are a lot of other worse actors out there to be mad at. But just from a pure political skill perspective, I just, I kind of wish they would take her off the ticket for, like, just kind of put her out of her misery, let her live her best life, go do something that she's clearly better equipped at, because this starts to feel like torture. Yeah. I think it's obvious that if they could diplomatically, without causing any headaches additionally for themselves, they would get rid of her. The problem is she will not go quietly into the night. Are you sure about that? She doesn't strike me as someone who is, like, enjoying her role. She's but she wants to be the next president. Why? Well, uh, well, that goes to a... Of psychological, uh, religious well. motivation. Well, she was a senator. That's pretty no good. No <laughs> one turns down the chance to be president, a significant chance. I, I, I would argue even that if the she's odds are she's likely to be. If she thinks that she's going to have an uncontested run to the White House, I mean, no, maybe she's not she going to have it uncontested, but she's, but she's going to have a. She thinks that she might. She's going to have somewhere between a twenty and forty percent chance of getting the nomination, right? Oh, I thought you were going to say something a little bit more macabre. Because I, I was listening to— No, no, no. To, I'm thinking about 2028. I was listening to, I think, um, the New York Times podcast, The Daily, and they were opining on whether or not there were some risks presented to Democrats if they can't rehab Kamala Harris, if, God forbid, 
you know, Joe Biden isn't able to continue in his duties and Kamala becomes the president, what does that do to their electoral chances? It seems like that would be a really bad outcome right. for, for Democrats. But if they try to make her leave, she's going to throw a tantrum publicly. It's going to be, there's going to be so many he negative headlines about this. Look, it would be dramatic. It'd be fun to watch. It'd be entertaining. But know. it would not at all benefit Biden to have tons and tons about, oh, you don't have confidence in your own team. But you, it would be, it would give the, it would be a feeding frenzy for the press. I the guess, press, which finds this whole thing boring because Biden is boring and there's not enough scandal and there's not enough intrigue. This would be intrigue. This would be covered like Hillary Clinton's but, but email scandal times 1,000 because there's nothing else to do. But what's the this? This might be my own projection, but Kamala Harris just doesn't. She doesn't seem like she's enjoying it. She does, she's not presenting herself as someone who wants to be president. There were all these she's moments. She's waiting her turn. She's no, she's no Dick Cheney. You know, there's not some sense that she's waiting on the wings, that she is puppeteering this, that she has a lot of engagement and ideas. But in 2028, she's going to get her turn. And she's also no Mike Pence, who seemed to simmer kind of quietly frustrated that um, Trump was so unorthodox with respect to his language and his religious views and his relationships with women and all of these kinds of things. Kamala Harris. But that's a great. Yeah. I, I, I can imagine a world in which Kamala Harris. I cannot accepts a deal. I can't. I can't and imagine a, such a world for any person. All of the, all of these political figures, miserable. they want to be president. She looks very unhappy and, Pe well, and, and Pence, Pence uh, he was hanging on because he wanted to be the next guy. And yeah. up until January 6th. Yeah, when they he, wanted him to that, literally that was a <laughs> That was a calculation that was made from political savvy that he would have a good chance to be the future, a future Republican nominee. Right. Then it all came apart. But, but I, I'm saying up I don't, until that I don't, point, I don't see that as for, for Kamala Harris. I don't see her posturing herself in that same way. I, I agree with Mike Pence. I don't see it with Kamala Harris. I could be wrong. There was some talk about her doing events with uh, Pete Buttigieg, as though maybe his perceived political acumen would rub off on her. But of course, he's in the doghouse as well over the handling of um, East Palestine and the rail crash there. They say they've given her better issues. Um, she's not focusing on abortion as opposed to the border crisis, which was like a loser for anybody involved because immigration is affected so Some much by what's popular happening in other Democrats countries. y'all have in the mix, her and Mayor Pete and it, it, it's a mess, which is why we should turn probably to the, back to the poll of the Democratic sure. incumbents. Of course, the Democratic Party has said there's not going to be a primary, uh, a, pr a debate. I mean, <laughs> they're kind of saying that there's not going to be a primary period. They've reordered the order of the primary states to put South Carolina up in the order, a state that is very uh, advantageous to Joe Biden, that he has a lock on. Um, but 19% for RFK a week out from his announcement. Marianne got, went up from, I think she was 5% in the earlier poll to 9% now. Um, that was the rising bump. She was on rising. <laughs> rising bump. You know, she's been doing a lot of media, kind of like a, maybe like a Pete Buttigieg style strategy. Remember, Liz Smith, his comms person, had him basically do everything in 2019, 2018. He came out of nowhere. You would see him on the cover of every, you know, the, the kind of Washingtonian style magazines you see sitting around this city. He was on everybody's podcast. He just got his face out there. And, you know, it's been undercovered, but Marianne Williamson has had a lot of success in, in traditional media markets, like on Twitter. I'm sorry, on, on TikTok, rather. And it'll be interesting to see hmm. if that those, those uh, popularity numbers continue to rise.
Yeah, it is very interesting to see. Well, Kennedy reacted to Dr. Anthony Fauci's recent comments on his handling of the pandemic, tweeting, quote, it is dawning on mainstream figures like Anthony Fauci that their COVID policies were a public health disaster. Lots of us are angry about the mandates, the lockdowns, the censorship, the insanity, but we need to avoid the toxic quagmire of retribution and blame and focus on ensuring this never happens again, clean up the regulatory agencies, get corporate money out of public health, and guarantee free, open, uncensored public and scientific discourse. You know, that's a pretty disciplined message yep. on all of these things, honestly. Uh, many people share a lot of those frustrations. Uh, and, and, you know, also I thought it was smart, and Kim Iverson, our former co-host, mentioned this on Twitter. Um, she said she was pointing to RFK Jr. saying that, you know, he's friends with Joe Biden, he likes him, but here are my disagreements with him. And she was saying, you know, that is smart, because people like, people can like the, the, the friendliness and want to bring down the division and bitterness, but still have very important debates about policy without it being so doom and gloom all the time. I think so Republicans are succumbing too much to doom and gloom That's sometimes. interesting, because I saw a lot of leftists reacting to that, yeah. leftists who were otherwise very sympathetic to him, saying, I'm tired of hearing I'm friends with X, Y, and Z. They hated it when Bernie said, I'm friends with Biden, I like Biden, he's a good guy. And, and I think there's some real danger to that, because basically you're, you're framing yourself as an outsider, but you're friends with the president of the United States, you like the president of the United States, people want to fight her, I think. It's not about being unnecessarily hateful or personal or anything like that in your attacks, but people want someone who's going to bring the level of fight and have an allegiance to the people, not someone they happen to have a personal relationship because they've all been rich people in politics in Washington for their entire lives. Why are you friends with Biden? What? Why, why do we not have a presidential candidate that's never met Biden? I would love someone who's never been in the well, same room as Biden. Because his last name is Kennedy. <laughs> well, right. I mean, and that's, that's the hang-up. And that's why I think a lot of some leftists— I don't think that's it. Well, are, maybe for leftists. Well, some leftists are skeptical of a Kennedy really being able to bring that outsider energy. It's a mixed bag. I think that a lot of people want to believe. But when you say something like, I'm, I'm, good for, I'm friends with Joe Biden, I like Joe Biden— why? You like the person that wrote the crime bill that put my, my family in jail? You like the person who eulogized a segregationist? You like the person who's been accused of all of these Me Too instances? You like the person who's funding a blank check for Ukraine? Why? Because they were nice to you at a social gathering? Because they, they, they pet a dog on the head I, I kindly? Don't, I don't what have is a, that even, why is that even relevant? I don't have a horse in this race. I, maybe you're right. My instinct is that I, I'm sure that is something that I know, in fact, that that's something that matters a lot to a certain segment of the left. I've, I've, I've heard the perspective you're voicing be voiced before. I, I don't know if a, a more kind of independent—left's probably the wrong way to describe it—a kind of independent— populist view. I don't know that they feel that same way, but I, I have no idea, and I, I'm not interested in, you know, promoting it one way or the other. I don't Check out this care, comparison. But. I never heard Bernie Sanders say, I like Hillary Clinton in 2016. Mm -hmm. He did say, let's lay off the talk about the emails. I don't want to get personal, yada, yada, yada. Well, maybe he genuinely didn't like her. Right. And he ran a better race against her. He was fiercer well, against her. He caught out the contrast better against her because he didn't like her. I think saying you like the person is basically kind of an acknowledgement that you might bend the knee. When, I think that, when it comes time. I think that just reflected the fact that Hillary Clinton was not well-liked and Joe Biden was, which is why he won and she didn't. But I don't know.
I don't know. Do you tell? Let us know. I, I again, I am not trying to advance any kind of softness toward Joe Biden here. Do you want our political figures or uh, people making policy to generally get along and like each other? Well, or? no, they can get along, but extemporaneously say, saying, I like. "Hey, I like the person." What? Because they passed me a canapé at the last shindig we were like at it's, together. Like it's your crush in sixth grade. Don't say that. I like, 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 I like Robbie. Just I like. like her. <laughs> All right, we're rising after this. New photos from yesterday's White House press conference appear to show President Biden holding a cheat sheet, complete with notes on which reporters to call on and the questions that they will ask. The image in question shows Biden holding a piece of paper complete with LA Times reporter Courtney Sabramian's photo and credentials, as well as her questions. Hmm. Hmm. So this is... So I, I wouldn't object to him having a handy list of the reporters, their photo, even their photos. Well, they just like your teacher in uh, in college, mm -hmm. like has that to take attendance. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, the, usually they're supposed to figure it out, and then I, I mean, maybe Biden has sure. to keep remembering it. Even a, even a teacher, you get more repeat players. But in your the class. questions, the yeah. questions. Yeah. The questions. <laughs> so I think that the main issue here for Biden is that this could happen to any number of people, but because he is old and because he's had the gaps that he's had and because so many Americans don't want him to run again chiefly because he is old, these are the kind of stories that are going to do nothing for his most uh, vulnerable mm -hmm. uh, vulnerabilities, the weakest part of his public image right now. And, you know, what's the alternative for him to fumble and not being able to answer questions. I think this is what it is. Um, but even if we found out that Trump were doing the same thing or DeSantis were doing the same thing, the implications of it wouldn't be the same. Well, people, I think there would be more outrage from the mainstream media. And wait, wasn't there a, wasn't there a Democratic controversy with Hillary Clinton getting the questions ahead of time in some debate? That does sound familiar. Do you know with what Bernie I'm saying? In the in a, it was against Bernie. This was a Bernie thing. Yeah, I think it was like this came out on the Podesta emails. I think Bernie debate questions. Uh, Donna Brazil under siege yes. after giving Clinton debate question. Yeah, for sure, it's a it's a problem. You it, it undermines the idea that there's anything like an adversarial press so much for the fourth estate. He has all the time to there's workshop. An there's an adversarial press. They're just adversarial to, to, to people. some people and not others. <laughs> They're not right. adversarial toward the Joe Bidens and Hillary Clintons of the world. They're adversarial to Republicans and certain outsiders. Right, but there's conservative journalists that are not adversarial to their own conservative journalists. I mean, we just had the Dominion lawsuit where we found out that mm -hmm. Fox News as a whole privately couldn't stand Trump and thought that the Stop This Deal was a lie, but mm -hmm. publicly refused to say anything about it. And in fact, Tucker Carlson tried to sanction a reporter who did say that she thought it was a lie on the internet. So, you know, we, we have media problems across the board. I don't know that this is a partisan issue. And I do think this is part of why people are turning increasingly to untraditional media, maybe including Tucker Carlson. I will say, as someone who obviously exists in that world, the problem is getting the same level of access to leadership to, sure. to be able to ask them the adversarial questions that you are willing to ask them. So on the left, we often give Ro Khanna credit, even if we don't like his answers, he regularly submits himself to independent left media all the time. But by contrast, AOC got a lot of flack because she did a very rare appearance on left media with David Sirota on his podcast a couple of weeks ago. And uh, people felt like 
she's able to dodge questions. It's not as adversarial as they would like. They feel like she very much cherry picks who she'll go and talk to and who she won't. And that that's part of why there's no accountability between left electeds and the, the, the leftists mm -hmm. who put them in office. Yeah, I give Democrats who are willing, and, and only some of them are, not very many, who are willing to go on places like Fox and act, actually submit themselves to questioning. Uh, to his credit, and I know you don't agree with his views very much, I don't either, Pete Buttigieg is one of those. Sure. Um, Amy Klobuchar was another. Uh, Bernie Sanders has done Fox Absolutely. in the past. Um, you know, there's a willingness. And I, and I think that's a good, I think that reflects a, a sound judgment that, you know, half the country is watching that network or conservative networks yeah. instead of the venues where you appear. Yeah, Marianne was on Fox earlier Mar oh, uh, last is, night, I think, yeah, the night before. RFK Jr. RFK Jr. was on last week, of course. You know, I, I, and I do think there's a lesson to be learned because the left media is not easy on Ro Khanna. I have not been easy on Ro Khanna no. when he's come on my show. And I thought you were kind of brutal to him when the last time we had him on this show. I'm not sure he's ever going to come back. I'm not brutal to anyone. But he, he does keep coming back. Mm -hmm. um, and more, moreover, I don't think he really takes a reputational hit. The people who have the same critiques that I have are going to continue to have those mm -hmm. critiques. The people who don't care, don't care. Um, and I think that there's a lesson to be learned. But even if you have kind of a bad interview, even if you aren't able to answer questions, even if you give your enemies ammunition, as it were, Ultimately, no one interview is going to tank your entire career in the ways that I think people are afraid of. Everyone's had bad interviews, including with friendly media. And so for the sake of democracy, I would argue that they should follow Ro Khanna's example and just do more of it. Mm -hmm. I'm sure they ended up selling more books. Bethany Mandel did after her interview with you on this show. <laughs> You're welcome, so. Bethany. I do what I can. <laughs> but yeah, uh, but yeah so, and, and we've talked about going back to Biden and yeah. the questions. And we've also talked about in the past how he just doesn't do that many press interviews right. anyway. I mean, he does them so rarely that he maybe that's the reason he doesn't remember. He doesn't know whose name is whose, which goes with which face. I mean, that, he just doesn't do it very that, often. That's fair, too. Also, I'm bad with names. I'm bad with faces. But here, here's Biden's fundamental problem. 70% of adults said Biden, who was 80, should not run again. 70% of adults. Asked if age was a factor, 69% of them said yes. Now, you might argue Donald Trump is not that much younger than Joe Biden. That's true. But the approach has been from conservatives to, to juxtapose them and, and, and showcase how—I can't believe I'm saying this—Trump relatively can appear to be— younger and more nimble. He dyes his hair. You know, I don't know. It's like, it's a weird thing to have to his argue. Energy. But obviously people are reading those men's respective ages differently. It was the same with, with, with Bernie and Biden. Mm -hmm. Bernie got a lot of criticism for being old, despite being very much in the same age cohort as Joe Biden and not that far away from Elizabeth Warren, but it's because of his aesthetic, you know, he he doesn't he doesn't care about what right. he looks in the same kind of way that well, Biden right. does. I often have to look up again just how old those four people are and who's technically older than who because you can't necessarily tell from looking at them. Bernie, Most of them have a lot of energy. Biden is the one who doesn't. Ber Bernie is eighty-one. Yeah. Biden is. He's not the old. Eighty. Ber yeah, Bernie's older than Biden, right? Yeah, That's by a year. Said. But he doesn't look it. He doesn't go. He doesn't quite seem. He looks it. He doesn't quite I mean, seem. I it. think his energy level is is much better than mm -hmm. Biden. His cognitive mm -hmm. thereness is no comparison to Biden. But you know, he presents as you know has less hair. He's got that kind of grandpa aesthetic. He's Who got has kind less of hair? Bernie. Than Biden. Yeah, B Biden has those big. Uh, yeah. 
white teeth. <laughs> you know, he's obviously put some work into appearing. In fact, Biden now looks, I would argue, younger than he did maybe 20 years ago. Some Biden? Yeah, he's I that's not, not true. Not again, not in terms of how he's moving and how he's talking and how he's presenting, but straight up aesthetically, pull up if you pull up a photo from Biden in like the the 90s, look at Biden from the Anita Hill uh tri trials. Well, that has, wasn't he, 20 years ago. He, that was, was like 35 years, years ago. But he he has less hair. Mm. He's done something. I mean, I'm not I'm not trying okay. to get into the specifics of what he may or may not have done. That's not my job. But I'm saying he presents I thought when he was running for vice president as as, a, as Barack Obama's vice president, I, I think he looks older than he looked then. That was in the in the late aughts. But well, that's right. That's from the Anita Hill. It, yeah. It's the, it's I, the when you're saying, losing the hair it's part. It's not good. Ebbs and flows as people make take different interventions to deal with their. I'm just what well, I, the well, point got, I'm trying to make hair plugs or is something? that there are aesthetic <laughs> there are aesthetic differences, and then there's these temperamental di differences. So you see Bernie running up escalators. You see him moving around. Very I saw quickly. him running down the street one time, just running. Yeah, he going. was he was he was a track star with like a four four minute and change yeah. mile that's mile time really back when he was a kid, and that seems to have stayed with him. Better than my. So, mile so time. the question is, are Democrats going to be able to convince folks that AJ nothing but a number <laughs> or is it, are they going to continue to be dogged by stories like this the subtext of which is Biden doesn't have it together enough to be president yeah that's what we'll have to see uh, obviously that kind of attack on Joe Biden was not sufficient to stop him from a winning the election in 2020, which he did win, and then in the midterms where he did his party, at least, I, he, ex, he wasn't explicitly on the ballot, but his party did way better than expected, way better than would be historically expected. Maybe the knocks on his age and his health just aren't ultimately at the day aren't enough, but maybe they'll maybe they'll get worse as he again he's because he continues to age yeah. throughout this process yeah. for another uh, year and change, and then onward into what could potentially be a second term for him. Yeah. So we'll have to keep following. Trump, Trump, by the way, is 76. He'll be 77 in June. He's a Gemini. A Gemini. What is the, <laughs> what are the character? I have to ask you this every time. People like Gemini. What are the characteristics of Gemini's? <laughs> People like a Gemini. They are social. They are outgoing. They are, are chatty. People say that they are two-faced. Um, but, you know, I like, I, I'm a fire sign. You're a fire sign. So we like Gemini. We get along with them very well. Make of that what you want. <laughs> All right. Well, that's, I think that's it for astrology, presidential <laughs> astrology today. Tomorrow on Rising, Jason Nichols and Amber Athey will be back here at the desk to bring you a very special Friday edition of the show. I will be back next week, but Brianna, you'll be on vacation, I, I will believe. be on vacation, but I will be back in the chair a week after that, and I really look forward to you meeting our new guest host for next week. Excellent, yes. So tune in to that. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any of our content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're now available anywhere you can find podcasts. See you next week. This was a fun one. This was a, a fun week in media. Yeah, <laughs> events, I had a good I time. We had a good time. Bye-bye. <laughs> okay, see ya.